Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. My name is James Sagers, and my friends call me Jim or Jimmy. And it's my pleasure to introduce this series to you, Understanding Catholicism. Well, I ask you to join me as we say the Jesus Prayer together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every faculty of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, today we're going to talk about a subject that a lot of people don't understand very well, and a subject that's also controversial. Uh, it's a subject of grace. And we're going to talk how grace heals us. We're going to talk about Luther's error in explaining grace, about how Jesus established his church as the instrument through which his grace comes to us, so all the merits of his redemption. And that will include Peter's primacy, the whole what does justification mean, what that does to us, how it changes us, uh, and the importance of good works, and what does that mean, and then how this leads to the sacraments, because the sacraments are the ordinary specific means that God gives us in order to have grace and to live the Christian life to the full. So let's jump in. Jesus healing the terrible wounds of Adam's sin, and he does this through grace. So Paul tells us, so therefore sin came into the world through one man— and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sin in Adam, of course. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. Notice the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Then as one man's trespass, that's Adam's sin, <clears throat> led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness, Jesus' life, death, passion, resurrection, leads to acquittal and life for all men. So grace gives us life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, his love, 
many will be made righteous. That's from Paul's beautiful letter to the Romans. Now, Christians have always believed in the redemptive power of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. However, in the 16th century, a dramatically flawed understanding of what God's grace does for us and how we are required to respond was promoted by Martin Luther. It's very important to understand what Luther taught to contrast that to what Jesus taught. Luther believed in what we call total depravity. In other words, Luther confused temptations, that is, the tendency to sin, which we call concupiscence, with actual sin. The reality is, 10,000 temptations do not constitute one single sin. So his dark understanding of fallen humans led to the conclusion that human nature was totally, essentially corrupted even after receiving the grace of redemption. And thus, good works that please God were impossible. This distortion makes Adam's sin more powerful than the infinite merits of Jesus Christ that cannot undo the damage of original sin. So, what did the grace of justification do according to Martin Luther? Luther taught that grace covered over our sinful nature. Similar, for example, to the way snow overcovers a dunghill. We are the dunghill. It then looks clean and beautiful and pure, but the underlying reality remains just the same. It's a power of manure, and so are we, just as corrupt before justification as after. So, under Luther's understanding, this justification is how we go from being God's enemies to God's friends. How do we go from being estranged from God to his sons and daughters? Became a legal fiction, which is also sometimes called a forensic justification, in which God declares us just. He says they're just, but he doesn't make us just internally. This is critical. In other words, what Luther developed was a divine welfare system in which one is saved by faith alone, which he called sola fide, but that's it. Nothing really happens to change us internally. And he based this on his theory of the Bible, meaning my interpretation of the Bible is what the Bible teaches. So Luther's highly charged subjective experiences became the lever he used to reject the teaching of the church since the time of the apostles. He claimed then that the Bible, not the church, is the only infallible authority. The problem is, who interprets it? There are three fatal flaws with this principle that's called the Bible alone, or the Latin expression, sola scriptura. Number one, it's not historical. There's no evidence in the first 1,500 years of Christianity that Christians believe that their faith was based on the principle of the Bible alone. In fact, the Bible wasn't even recognized as a book until the late 4th century. Additionally, few people could even read, and books were scarce. Didn't begin to become plentiful until the printing press was invented in 1440. Number two, 
this idea of the Bible alone is an absolute principle of division. Sola Scriptura is a principle of division. In other words, it gives infallibility to each individual interpreter. And so Luther, for example, wrote in 1522, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. Hmm, that's interesting. Where does the Bible teach that? Three years later, the fracturing that Sola Scriptura had already started was even obvious to Luther. So he lamented, oh, there are as many sects and beliefs as there are heads. This fellow will have nothing to do with baptism. Another denies the sacraments. A third believes there's another world between this and the last day. Some teach that Christ is not God. Some say this, some say that. There is no rustic so rude, but that if he dreams or fantasize anything, it must be the whisper of the Holy Spirit, and he himself is a prophet. This division, of course, has not abated since Luther's time. In the year 2001, the World Christian Encyclopedia reported there were 33,820 Christian denominations. It's now estimated that the number is over 40,000. So it's not historical, principle of division, and finally, it's not biblical. The Bible never teaches that sacred scripture alone is the only absolute authority in matters of faith and morals, the final court of appeal of all Christian doctrine and, and practice. So this absence of any biblical support led the Protestant scholar Hermann Rieberbos to admit the authority of the scriptures, that is soul scripture, is a great presupposition of the whole of biblical preaching and doctrine. Presupposition? Wait a second. What does the Bible teach this stuff? Where, what does the Bible say about soul scriptura? Nothing. The Bible calls the church, not the Bible, the pillar and foundation of truth. So what we see in sacred scripture, and what the church has always taught, that Jesus established an infallible church, an infallible authority in his church that we will know with certitude what revelation means. Peter, then, is going to become his prime minister. In the district of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his apostles an important question. Who do men say the Son of Man is? Well, they kind of gave Jesus a Hall of Fame answer. They responded, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? Now Simon Peter answered under divine inspiration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to Peter, and I tell you, you're Peter, Petros, rock. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. 
The expression, the kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times in St. Matthew's Gospel, 63 times in additional references in the New Testament alone as the kingdom of God and many other references to the kingdom. Jesus clearly considered himself a king and he came to establish his kingdom. The proclamation of his kingship hung over Jesus' head during his execution, written in Greek, the language of education, in Latin, the language of the empire and power, and in Hebrew, the language of the chosen people. The key imagery that Jesus employs to Peter is important because the one who holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven operates as Jesus' chief prime minister. Here Jesus is citing Isaiah 22, indicating that a dynastic succession, that an office is being transferred. In Isaiah 22, an unworthy prime minister named Shebna is being removed and a more worthy man, Eliakim of Hilkiah, is being installed in his place. Eliakim will be invested with the key of the house of David, as will be Peter. And he will receive the king's absolute authority. And so, in Isaiah we read, He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. Meaning, he has a complete authority of the king. So, the plenitude of power will be given to Peter, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. That's the basis of the church's teaching on infallibility, because God cannot support anything that is false. And if he stands behind what Jesus binds and looses, that means it's bound or loose, period. God cannot support anything that is false. So Peter and his successors are protected by the spirit of truth. So what does the gift of infallibility do? It protects Peter and his successors from teaching error when he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith and morals. This gift of infallibility is also present in the body of all the bishops of the world when together with Peter's successor, they exercise their supreme authority, particularly in what we call an ecumenical council. But notice, the gift of infallibility does not protect the Pope or his successors or the bishops collectively with the Pope from sinning or bad judgment. It has to do with teaching infallibly matters pertaining to faith and morals. Those who object to Peter's primacy notice that when Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter and upon this rock, the two Greek words that are used with different endings. One is petros, the other is petra. In the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke, as well as Hebrew, the word rock is kepha, but it's neuter in gender either masculine or feminine, and in the New Testament is often cited as Cephas. However, in Greek, the word for rock, whether it's big or small, is Petra, which has a feminine ending. 
Therefore, St. Matthew takes this feminine word, Petra, and gives it a masculine ending, Petros, because Jesus is renaming Peter. The Greek word for small rock in Greek is lithos. We get the word lithograph from that. And it is not used to identify Simon Peter. So here, the name change, Peter's name from Simon to Peter, or Petros, is important because it indicates a change in Peter's mission. He is now the first among the twelve. He's the head of the apostles. Now, the fact of Peter's importance is primacy as the chief priest of the apostles is evident when you read the New Testament. Peter, for example, is named 191 times more than all the rest of the apostles collectively. John is named second most after Peter. He's only named 48 times. Peter's always the spokesman for the apostles. The apostle identified as Peter and his companions. When the apostle listed in the New Testament, Peter's always listed first among the apostles. Jesus tells Peter when he predicts his fall, tells him to strengthen the brethren. During the Last Supper, at the very time Jesus predicted Peter's denial, Jesus reminded Peter to fulfill his office by strengthening his brethren. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That He means by that you're going to be severely tempted. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that is, repented, strengthen your brethren. Notice he gives his command to Peter. Jesus also confirms Peter's primacy. It's a very moving scene that occurs at the Lake of Galilee by a charcoal fire after the resurrection. Here Jesus reverses Peter's betrayal and confirmed him in his office of prime minister. The charcoal fire alone is significant because it was at a charcoal fire where Peter denied Jesus three times. In this meeting with Peter, three times Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? After each affirmation, Jesus declared, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. What's interesting is the first few times when Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? He used the Greek word or the Greek verb, Agapal, which means, do you love me with perfect love? And what Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. In other words, he's not the proud, boastful man he was at the Last Supper. He's, Jesus, you know that I have at least basic love for you. So the third time when Jesus says, Simon, do you love me, really love me? Jesus says, Simon, do you really phileo me? In other words, can you really say you love me with basic love? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I at least love you that much. And Peter says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Peter was called to emulate Jesus as the good shepherd. And what we see after the resurrection, 
we see Peter exercising the decision, his authority as the head of the apostles. For example, it's Peter who made the decision to elect a successor to take Judas's place, and they picked Matthias. Peter is the one who preached the first sermon after the ascension. Peter was the first apostle to perform a miracle. Peter is the one who exercised his authority in judging Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied to Peter about the money they were giving to the church. Peter is the one who rendered the first excommunication to Simon the magician. He was the first apostle to raise someone from the dead. Peter was called to approve the Samaritans becoming members of the church. Peter is the one God gave the revelation to to admit the Gentiles into the church on an equal footing with the Jews. It was Peter who made the decision that the Gentile converts should be baptized. And finally, at the Council of Jerusalem, there was a heated debate over the issue of should Gentile converts be circumcised in order to be saved. This was a big issue. In other words, did they have to become Jews? What do we see in Acts 15? After much debate, Peter decided the matter. And what happened? And all the assembly kept silence. Peter had spoken. The debate was over. So what does the church teach on this important issue of justification? That is, how we go from being God's enemies to his sons and daughters. The church has always taught that it's an interior transformation. It produces a participation in the life of God to share in God's own nature. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. It's not a welfare plan, which is what Luther taught, but it's a divine family plan where we become the Heavenly Father's adopted sons and daughters. So Paul tells us his divine power has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, but which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What is that? That's the new covenant. That through these we escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers, sharers of the divine nature. Wow. So what does sacred scripture teach us? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself, as St. Paul clearly teaches in his second letter to the Corinthians. In order to help us understand grace, the church has developed the terms sanctifying grace and actual grace to help us see the difference between the two, to understand this marvelous gift that God gives us. Sanctifying grace, also sometimes called habitual grace, 
is a stable supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself, enables our very being to share in God's own nature, and therefore to act by his love. Actual grace or actual graces are the impulses of God's love working in us to perform the good works that are pleasing to God. So everything we do that pleases God is grace. So because we share then in God's own nature, we can become the Heavenly Father's adopted children. And so John tells us, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And to make sure that no one takes this as just a metaphor, he adds these very important words, and so we are. Scripture continues, But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, that is a natural birth, but a reborn of God. Wow. The beginning of John's gospel. So when we were able to cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness within us, within our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if we are his children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, what do we get? We get the Heavenly Father's property. It's called paradise. Grace makes us members of Christ's own body. That's called the mystical body, which is the definition of the church. Paul says, do you not know that your body, your bodies are members of Christ? He also tells us he is the head of the body, the church. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, members of the church, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It's so incredible. In other words, in Christ transforming us to share the divine life, we are more closely related to other Christians who are faithful to Christ than we are to our biological brothers and sisters if they're not members of Christ. It's a relationship that will last eternally. In addition to that, grace transforms us to become the very temple of the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Later on, he says the same thing. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So the gift of grace, God's grace, protects our freedom so that we can overcome the tyranny of sin. So the divine initiative in the work of grace is what it always precedes, prepares, and elicits the free response of man. In other words, grace responds to deepest yearning of the human heart, of human freedom. It calls us to real freedom, to cooperate with it, and perfects that freedom.
And therefore, the church has always taught the necessity of doing good works. Now, good works by definition are human acts of loving faith that are pleasing to God and are required for our salvation. They are possible only because of God's grace. So Jesus taught us during the Last Supper, apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, what the church teaches and calls good works can also be called graced works because they are possible only if we cooperate with God's help. St. Paul has important things to say about good works. So he wrote to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Notice, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because we know we have sinned, and we know we're sinned against. So we're fear and trembling of ourselves. But he gives us the remedy. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow. So the fear and trembling that Paul talks about comes from our vulnerability to sin. He knows he himself was a sinner in the past, and he knows that he was capable of sinning in the future, just as we. And so he trusted God, not Paul. We need to trust in God, not ourselves. And so when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So notice where Paul puts the emphasis on God's grace. And his grace told me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Paul taught that we are formed in Christ for the very purpose of performing good works. So he writes in his letter to the Ephesians, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, the word there in Greek is gar, and introduced a purpose clause means for the purpose of good works. So St. Augustine teaches us that our rewards in heaven that come from good works are a result of God's crowning his own gifts. Isn't that incredible? The example I'd like to use when my son Robert was very small, he had a job of taking the trash to the corner. Problem was he couldn't even move the barrel. So I would grab the barrel and lift it up, and then he'd put his little hand on it, and he'd be straining like he was carrying it. And we'd go to the curb and put the barrel down. Then I'd give him a reward. Well, that's how grace works. Our hand is the little hand on the barrel, and God is always doing the heavy lifting. So the biblical teaching on saving faith is important and is very clear. He actually framed his entire letter to the Romans on the indispensable connection between faith and obedience or love. Remember, obedience to God is love in action. He says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among the nations, the Gentiles. That's how he begins his letter to the Romans. Then he ends it. According to the revelation of the mystery, which has kept secret for long ages. What secret is that? That all the Gentiles will be incorporated into the church under equal footing with the Jews. But is now disclosed through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations, all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. Wow. And so when he writes to the Galatians, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or no circumcision is of any avail. What counts? But faith working through love. And Jesus himself made the same connection between love and obedience during the Last Supper. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Sacred Scripture has always rejected the idea that we are saved by faith alone. Sola fide. So what does the Apostle James say in this important topic about good works? He asks a question. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons are better theologians than all. They know the truth. They just reject it. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, that is, good works, when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed, perfected by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see then, James goes on, the man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. How do you respond if someone comes to you and says, are you saved? This is how I answer. Well, I'm redeemed by the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And like St. Paul, I'm working out my salvation in fear and trembling. How about you? In the sacraments, Jesus gives us himself as the bridegroom giving his love to the bride. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means oath. Jesus uses the sacraments to 
institute and perfect the new covenant in us. It's through the sacraments that grace come to us. So these sacraments instituted by Jesus himself are perceptible signs, symbols, that Christ used to communicate his grace. The sacraments then are powers that come forth from the body of Jesus, which is ever-living and life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit that are work in the mystical body of Christ, his church. They are the masterworks of God and the new and everlasting covenant. And so, in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation and holy orders, they imprint an indelible character on our soul by which Christians share in Christ's own priesthood and are made members of the church according to the different states and functions. Therefore, these three sacraments can never be repeated. The sacraments of initiation or baptism, confirmation, and the Blessed Eucharist. And the sacraments of healing, reconciliation, the anointing of the sick, and then the sacraments of service, holy matrimony, and holy orders. We're going to talk about the sacraments in our next class. One final point on the sacraments before we leave. We're going to begin talking about sacrament of baptism in our next class. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant, those seven sacraments I just enumerated, are necessary for our salvation. Let's say then the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.